Sometimes it's more fun to just keep fellowshipping, but we can't. We need, we need to hear the word. Uh, today we're going to continue in the series of the seed that is sown, uh, the parable of the sower. We're going to be talking about that today uh, in continuation to, of the series that Dick had begun, where we're looking to, um, today we're going to be concentrating on preparing the ground uh, to receive the seed. So we're going to be talking about the parable of the sower in Matthew um, There are several things that came to mind this week as I was preparing this word, uh, even in the midst of the circumstances that we find ourselves in our home at the moment. And as I prepared this and, and continued to pray over it and give it to the Lord, he actually spoke some, some things into my heart that, that I needed to work with and adjust. Um, so everything that I'm bringing to you, uh, the Lord has also brought to me. So uh, I'm not trying to, to bring this to you from a place of, uh, top-down kind of instruction thing, but from a place of partially this is what I've learned, um, and God is continuing to work in my heart too. So we're going to be talking uh, about uh, the chapter, chapters 12 and 13 in Matthew, some other verses in, involved in that. As Jesus began his ministry and traveling through the, through the land into Judea, uh, prior to his crucifixion, he had gone into the synagogues and in numerous ways and various times, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, challenged him regarding the authority from which he spoke. And on one particular occasion, the disciples and Jesus they were walking through the fields on the Sabbath day and they happened to pick some grain and were kind of munching as they were going along and the Pharisees somehow got word of this and came to Jesus and, and challenged him on that. And so he began to teach them about the Sabbath day and what it really meant, to, what it was meant for as the Lord's day, not necessarily as a day where you don't do anything. Uh, they considered that reaping one of the, I believe it's 39 different uh, categories of, of tasks that were prohibited according to Mosaic law. But Jesus began to instruct them on the, the Sabbath day and, and what it was like. And, uh, and, and he taught them that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Later on, after this had happened, they, he had gone into the synagogue. This is on the same day. He went into the synagogue, the house of prayer. And he, was, he healed a man who had a shriveled hand. And as the Pharisees challenged him on that, who is this that can heal on the Sabbath day? I mean, that's one of those tasks. You're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath day. Seems kind of odd to me. But Jesus said the, that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath and that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so to demonstrate that, he healed this man and said, it is good, it is lawful, that was his words, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he proved in that that he was, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath, and this just made them more angry. And they began to plot to kill him. This is when the, they really began to get serious about this prior to the uh, betrayal and uh, eventual crucifixion. And he learned of their plans. He knew of their plans, so he left after uh, having had uh, done that. But the crowds followed him. And the Pharisees couldn't just you know, take him and, ca and, and arrest him at that point because of the crowds, so they took a different approach. They went to him, and almost seeming to accept him, they asked him for a sign. 
teacher, we would see a sign from you. And in what they were saying in that, or what appeared, they appeared to be saying in that was, Lord, if you give us a sign, we'll believe in you. Um, and Jesus obviously didn't fall into that trap. But he gave them the sign of Jonah, of three days and nights in the belly of the fish, which symbolized his death and also foreshadowed the resurrection. Uh, But he spent more time telling them, instead of giving them the sign and explaining the sign to them, he said, but I've already given you a sign. And what's happened is you've had the sign since the days of Jonah, and when Jonah went to Nineveh, they repented, but you won't even hear and understand the sign, neither will you repent, so the generation of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against you. He was talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders because the leaders would not believe when the people of Nineveh did. But this placed him in greater danger, from our perspective, physical danger, uh, from the leaders. And so because of that, his parents, his, I mean, his mother and his brothers came and wanted to speak with him. They wanted to kind of diffuse some of the tension that had, uh, he had triggered with the Pharisees. But Jesus pointed out at that point, at that time, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And he asked that question, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. And this apparent rejection is misunderstood sometimes. Uh, Jesus actually predicted his estrangement or separation, if you will, from family in Psalm 69. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We're going to be hinting on that zeal in a bit. Jesus reaffirmed this division of ideals among family members in Matthew chapter 10. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, Jesus' family allowed themselves to be swayed by the opposition that had been gathered against him. And they feared for his safety, perfectly natural. While their reaction to the circumstances may seem normal to us, they missed the all-important fact that Jesus was always, from early age, about his father's business. And so they were caught up in the circumstances and not in the goal. Their genuine fear for his safety, perhaps more their fear for their own safety because of him, was greater than their determination to know and understand and to follow him, to follow the Christ, the truth, the incarnate word of God. 
the reality of the breakdown in their resolve, that determination, which foreshadows, in a way, our own, set the tone for Jesus' explanation and revelation in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have, uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus said, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear, then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, the sower in this parable is Jesus, who went out to sow the seed. This was his message of the kingdom of God. Luke 4.40 states, Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, saying, You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, 
because they knew he was the Christ. See, Jesus picked up the message of John the Baptist and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in this case, he ministered all night, and afterward, he went alone to pray. But the people followed him. They followed him. They wanted to see more. They wanted to be close to him. They wanted to be a part of it. And they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He was sowing the seed. Luke 8, Luke 16, and Acts 1 also give accounts of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God or preaching the kingdom of God. So Jesus is the sower, and he went out to sow the seed. And the seed in the parable is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. So, so Jesus sows the seed, which is the word of God, which is himself the embodiment of God. And it is the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, God in the flesh, was there. He was near them. He was at hand, right there with them. It is combined message that God was with his people. That is, Jesus is literally Emmanuel, God with us. The second idea of this message is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand implies that we should take this seriously. It's also a warning that we should respond to the message with a determination to do the will of the Father, a determination to hold to the word, and that we should not be swayed by circumstances or pressures that are allied against us, whether in the natural world or the spiritual world, that will weaken our resolve to follow the truth. I don't mean just walk behind and be a part of. I mean follow in terms of being involved in it, letting it become involved in us. We follow our hearts sometimes, but it's not just walking behind and recognizing what's going on. It's being fully involved in it. So the different soils in the parable of Matthew 13, represent different possibilities of what can happen when people hear the message. We want to identify the possibilities so that we can avoid the negative outcomes and we can embrace the positive results and thereby we can bring forth fruit from the seed which was sown, the seed being Jesus. So the first possibility of soil is explained in Matthew 13, 19. This is along the path or the wayside in some versions. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So to understand, the word understand, means to put together, to grasp, to perceive, or to comprehend information. However, it suggests more than simple understanding. 
it represents making sense out of it and being able to apply it. Now, as a teacher, I take to my students all kinds of instruction for them to understand. But I'm a big proponent, advocate, if you will, of getting them to own the instruction. When they own it, they can apply it. And this is what God wants us to be able to do. He wants us to be able to own, make it our own. That really is to comprehend and understand. So those who don't understand, the evil one snatches it away. Now, a path is a way that is formed. It is a way that is trodden down, or it is a way that is beaten down by traffic. It's hard-packed. Before farmers can sow seed for their crops, they must plow up and till the soil to loosen it, to prepare it. But the pathway is hardened, so it's easy for birds to snatch away the seeds because there's no place for it to go. There are no little nooks and crannies for the seeds to drop into and germinate. They're just laying out there on the path, and the, the birds of the air, Jesus said, come and take it away. The soil on this portion of the, of the parable represents the person who has heard the word of God but who has been beaten down by events, circumstances, or teachings in their lives that have hardened them against acting on the good seed of the word. It robs them of joy. It robs them of productivity. This is done through deceptive teaching, through establishing false hope, or through questioning God's truth. It's an old trick of Satan. This is what he did with Eve in the garden. He distorted the truth of God's word. And such deception by Satan is the snatching away of the seed. Notice the seed itself is not distorted. It is the understanding that's distorted. The seed is the word of God. It's immutable. But the seed laying on the path, the hard-packed ground, is exposed to the birds of the air. Mark 4.4 4 says, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Ephesians 6.12 reads, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So when Jesus was talking about the birds of the air coming and snatching, he's talking about those rulers, those powers, those cosmic powers, those spiritual rulers in heavenly places, thus the word, the phrase, the birds of the air. He's talking about the spiritual activity of satanic forces that snatch away the seed because the ground is hard. If there's no place for the seed to germinate, it's easily taken away. Satan, who commands these rulers and authorities, realizes that the seed cannot get into the heart that is packed hard like the wayside. So he sends his demonic forces to snatch away the seed. If our heart is hard packed like the wayside, like the path, it's easy for Satan to come, snatch away the word that never could be germinated. It was sown, but it hasn't grown. The second soil sample comes from Matthew 13, 20. This is the rocky ground. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arise, on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, there are people who do receive the word gladly, but they have no root, no depth that gives strength of character. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, wrote this to encourage them that he was praying for their spiritual strength. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, there's that word, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's fruit. This speaks about knowing God as being both our goal and also our resource. There are two important facts here. Fact one, Paul says we are to be rooted and established in God and in the reality of his love through our personal experiences with him. Now, we do explore that concept in the Experiencing God course in the small groups. Shameless plug. So if you want to know more, join the small groups. And the, <laughs> sorry. the second fact is knowing God in a personal way through that experience is well beyond any capacity we could have to know him through knowledge alone. Some people know of God. Some people know about God. But our goal should be to know God and to be known by him. But we can't do that by knowledge alone. It must happen through experience. We can, we should be known by God because in him comes strength of character. It's not something we have, but it, through the word, it grows in us. So the people whose soil is made of rocky ground know about God, and they rejoice in that knowledge. They're very happy about it, but they don't know him in the depth of experience yet, and thus they wither away. These people tend to drift in and out of our lives, and sometimes our churches, because of circumstances, when things don't go their way, when they're offended by someone, if they disagree with the decision, then they tend to go off somewhere so that their experience can be more comfortable for them, more tolerable, more acceptable. But it's withering away in the face of adversity rather than standing firm and living a strong, victorious life with God and with the church. Now, the third type of soil is explained as the thorny soil. Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus was talking about those who hear the word of God, not the world. He's talking about us. He's talking about believers. He's talking about the crowds that followed him. Remember that he was talking to people who followed him 
believing or at least hoping that he really was the Christ, that he really was the Savior. The only proof they had was faith, those who had the ability to believe, as he said, but they have not, he said. Their eyes were closed. Their ears were closed. Jesus said we have to deny ourselves. We have to let go of our worldly worries. We have to let go of our plans. We have to let go of our desires and our interests. He foretold in Matthew 8 of his death and resurrection, and he talked about keeping those things in perspective, our plans, our desires. Matthew 8 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again, the sign of Jonah. And he said this plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In his very real concern for Jesus' safety, Peter wanted something other than what God had planned. But Jesus set him straight on that and rebuked him. And then Jesus turned and spoke to the crowd. In verse 34, he said, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, whom, if you recall, he had looked and seen. Now he calls them to him. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, the seed, will save it. Paul talks about losing our life and our citizenship is elsewhere. In Ephesians 2, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in Colossians 3, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid, the seed is hid with Christ in God. So the people of the thorny soil chose to believe that they can have everything the world has to offer and heaven too, even though Jesus was very clear that no man can serve two masters, according to Matthew, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the term money here comes from the Greek word mammon, which specifically means money or possessions. But I kind of extended that to mean the world. We cannot serve God and the world. Our citizenship needs to be in heaven. So in this part of the parable, Jesus indicates that when a person wavers back and forth between the world and the kingdom of God, the ways of the kingdom tend to get pushed aside and the worldly mindset takes over. This is the thorn 
We must have strong, continuous effort to resist the distraction of things of this world and a life that is separated from the We must live a life that is separated from the world and a life that is characterized by God's truth. We must follow the Christ if we allow the thorns to choke off the word of life the seed will not grow into fruitfulness. But finally, the fourth type of soil. This is the desirable soil. This is what we do want. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, grasps it, comprehends it, applies it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Dick has talked several times about the law of reciprocity and the exponential growth of the seed, and this is where we want to apply this to the good soil. The good soil represents a heart that has been thoroughly tilled and is soft toward God. The good heart is a heart that with a pure conscience and considerate and sober mind, a heart that has an affectionate yet restricted emotion and a softened and flexible will. We must be wholeheartedly given over to him, but not caught up in the emotional aspect of it. It must be knowledge, understanding. It can't be one or the other. It must be both. Looking at this law of reciprocity, This is the soil that we need to cultivate in our lives. If we till the ground, if we turn it over, if we plow it up, if we break up the chunks, we provide a place where the word of God will germinate in us, where the word of God will grow, and where the word of God will bring forth fruit. And when God relayed the uh, story of creation, and he first planted the trees on the earth, He said that there were trees yielding seed according to their kind and bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. I paraphrase that when I apply it to my heart and the soil, that this is the fruit that I want to bring forth to God that is yielding seed according to its kind, that the word would regenerate the word in me that it will bear fruit in which is the word, the seed, each according to its kind, and God will see that it is good. But that's not to say that the ground with the good soil has no stones, no thorns. What it does say is that there are not enough of them to hinder the fruitfulness that comes from the ground. Storms and thorns and, and storms, stones and thorns. Do we ever have storms? Stones and thorns can be found in the heart of the believer, but such obstructions do not prevent him from bearing fruit. These hindrances have been dealt with. They are correct in their perspective. We place them in the correct perspective in light of the word through our obedience and our determination to follow Christ and his ways so that we can, with a pure conscience, 
and trust in the conviction of the Holy Spirit, give every inch of our hearts as good ground to receive the word that may grow, bear fruit, and produce even to a hundredfold. So I leave with a question. Is your heart hardened today? Is your heart hard-packed? Is it trodden down, beaten down? Has it been walked all over? Has the word been snatched away because there's no place for the word to settle in your heart? Or is your heart filled with gravel, rocks? Do you experience lack of depth, lack of stability? Do you waver back and forth? Do you find yourself here one day, here the next, then back up? Are there thorns that are poking and choking you? Is your heart crowded by concerns of the world, worries, or desires for the things of this world? These three samples of soil leave us wanting, always wanting a deeper, more productive, more godly lifestyle, always wanting to know him more. Now, that doesn't negate that we do want to know him more. But if my prayer is consistently, God, I want more of you, I want more of you, I want more of you, and he speaks into my heart, and I'm not tilling the soil, then, then I've hardened my heart, and I'm still looking for the experience without the understanding. On the other hand, do you cultivate your heart? Do you plow it up? Do you turn it over? Do you water it with the word? Do you clean out the stones and the thorns that you find? We till our garden every year, and every year we're pulling out more stones and throwing them over on the stone wall on the side. And, you know, sometimes they're just little ones that work their way up. Sometimes they're a lot larger. But we have to keep pulling them out or else we're going to end up with more stones than we are crops. Do you sow the soil with God's word, the good seed? I want to take a moment and invite you to consider the soil of your heart. 